0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ed Choice Chats. I'm Drew Cat, and I'm here today with Mike McShane to discuss his latest work, a report called "Rethinking Regulation." Thanks for joining us today, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me. It's fun to be on this side of the microphone. <laughs> yeah, great. Let's begin at the most logical place, which is, what inspired you to work on this piece? What did you set out to discover? So I have the opportunity to speak all around the country about school choice, so um,
1: to college students, to civic organizations, at academic conferences, and almost inevitably after every one of those speeches where I extol the virtues of school choice, someone comes up to me and says, you know, I'm a traditional public school teacher, or I'm a principal, or I'm somehow involved in in public schooling. And if we were freed from the same regulations the charter schools or private schools were, we could be every bit as good as they are. And I have had the chance to think about that and thought, you know, that seems like an eminently reasonable proposition. Um, I think that both our traditional public school sector and increasingly our school choice sectors are being micromanaged by regulators. And so regulators take numerous forms when it comes to this, right? So, you know, economists would tell you that the definition of regulation is just requirements that the government imposes on firms and individuals to achieve the government's purposes. So those regulations could come in the forms of laws that are passed by state legislatures or the federal government or local school boards. It could be actual policies that local school districts or states construct, or it could be regulations that are drafted by state education agencies or local education agencies. The sum total of all of these laws, regulations, policies, rules um, that are drafted by these organizations is an at times incoherent and stultifying raft of requirements that schools have to meet, many of which have little to do with actually meeting the needs of children. So that was kind of the spark for all of this. And and as I dug into it more, you know, thinking more about the types of things that schools are required to do just led me kind of deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole.
0: Yeah, I'm sure that's quite a deep rabbit hole to dive down. So who are your recommendations aimed at in this report? And are lawmakers the only ones who can affect the changes you suggest? No, the recommendations are aimed uh, at. Lawmakers,
1: definitely, because they are the people who, you know, write laws that codify a lot of these requirements. But they're also directed towards the primary regulators of schools, which are people in state education agencies and local education agencies. So those are the people that kind of operationalize laws once they get passed. They develop a lot of the reporting requirements, a lot of the definitions. They clarify a lot of the things that happen in law. So a lot is directed towards them. There's also a bit that's directed towards the kind of quasi-governmental agencies that exist in education, so groups like charter school authorizers or government bureaucracies that oversee private school choice programs. So it's directed towards them as well. Basically, anybody that tries to uh, that, that places requirements on schools, this this paper is geared towards you.
0: Yeah. Okay. So before we delve deeper into this topic some of our listeners might need a bit of a crash course. Historically, how has government justified increasing or decreasing regulation in education?
1: So part of what I try to do in this paper is look towards other sectors that have deregulated or that have rethought regulation throughout the years. And I use two texts to kind of center the work that I did, um, both of which are very old, or reasonably old. Um, One is Alfred E. Kahn's The Economics of Regulation from the 1970s, and one is Stephen Breyer's Regulation and its Reforms from the 1980s. Now, luckily, both of these volumes talk about the historical justifications for regulations, uh, and again, they're talking about sectors other than education, but many of them apply to education. So some examples of this could be the control of monopoly power. So, insofar as school districts act as geographic monopolies, rules are are crafted by the federal government, by states, and by localities to shape their behavior and what they do. Um, we have regulations to compensate for spillover effects. So, those are, um, if we think about it from a context outside of education, if a factory pollutes a river, um, you know, if they're let's say they're making aluminum cans. When you sell that to the beer company, the beer company pays five cents for every can, but the true cost of creating that can is also borne by all the people downriver whose lives will be affected by the pollution that that the plant produces. In education, we see spillovers because children uh, go out into the world and if they are ignorant, their ignorance affects all of us. But there are other reasons, inadequate information, unequal bargaining power, moral hazard, and frankly, rightly or wrongly, a lot of it has to do with paternalism. There's also regulations around things like scarcity and fears of cream skinning. So I outline in the paper eight different historical justifications. I throw a kind of ninth one in, which is this fear that existed before about excessive competition. It doesn't really exist in other fields, but people still really seem to care about it in education. But I walk through all nine of those and talk about both how they've been applied in other areas
0: and how they've been applied in education. So what is the regulatory process like now in education?
1: So I walk through two two examples of how regulation um, is crafted. At the core of the regulatory process is something called standard setting. So again, if we think outside of the world of uh, education. but we think about regulations of automobiles, standards are set by, by what bumpers are supposed to look like, how seat belts are supposed to work, how head restraints are supposed to function, and when rules are written forcing cars to comply with that. The same thing is true in education. Standards are set around what children are expected to know by particular grades, how schools are supposed to function, and then rules are drafted to make sure that schools comply and meet those particular standards. Another way that the regulatory process happens um, is through what's called individualized screening. So the first set is setting these kind of broad sets of standards and then requiring that schools prove that they meet these standards. In other cases, regulators will act on a case-by-case basis to try and determine whether schools or, in some cases, teachers are meeting the standards that that they need to. Consider this the kind of FDA approach, right? A new drug wants to come onto the marketplace, the FDA will look at it on a case-by-case basis of whether or not that should be allowed. This is something that we see in charter school authorizing, right, where authorizers or state boards or local education agencies make a case-by-case decision as to whether or not those schools should be able to operate. So those those are two ways in which the regulatory process actually plays out in education.
0: Yeah, so you suggest some steps to reform how we regulate education in this report. What's the first step? Where should we start? I think the first and most important step is to Rethink the standard
1: setting process. Um, I think that um, lots of folks have a kind of mistaken view of like how educational standards are set. I think they they think that it's kind of disinterested experts that to get together and have some consensus around what a fourth grader is supposed to know or what a fifth grader is supposed to know. You know, as it turns out in a lot of these cases, they just kind of states will get together a group of stakeholders and put them in a room and have them hash it out. You know, in a democratic system where schools are supposed to represent the values of a community, I don't necessarily think that there's something wrong with that, but we should be clear that it's that group of people's opinions, and that there may be people who dissent from that or want something different um, for their children. So, reforming the process by both an understanding of the limitations to how standards are currently drafted and a thought to how can we simplify and clarify standards. So I give some examples of just the sheer number of standards that schools or, or children are expected to meet, how can we whittle that down, how can we say, listen, We want to focus on harm reduction, so making sure that schools aren't harming children, as opposed to micromanagement of schools.
0: Yeah, and we still want to leave our listeners plenty of reasons to read your report, so I won't ask you to reveal everything you've outlined in it. But how many steps are there? Can you give us a high-level look at the rest of these solutions? Yeah, so I
1: argue that step one is reforming the standard-setting process. Um, and I give a few different ways in which um, states and local education agencies might be able to do that. The second step I walk through is trying to focus on the worst actors. Again, when you, re- when you change your orientation from uh, micromanagement to harm reduction, you realize that it's not necessarily the regulator's position to try and deal with every single potentiality, but rather to focus on trying to stop the worst things from happening. Um, The third step that I offer is um, trying to use carrots before sticks. So regulation, uh, as Stephen Breyer argues, is a really blunt tool to try and accomplish what you want to accomplish. And as Khan argues, essentially it's a negative proposition where you tell people what they cannot do and then you check to make sure that they aren't doing it. So as a result, if we actually want to promote better schools or promote particular types of behavior, it may be much more healthy to try and use incentives as opposed to regulations. And I try to sketch out what exactly that would look like. And then the last step um, is to try and encourage regulators to respect the hidden benefits of innovation. Unfortunately, oftentimes regulation is based around stuff that we can see, some things that we can quantify, things that we can measure, but a lot of values that we have in education around things like diversity, around things like innovation, have hidden benefits. So regulations that prevent innovation from happening or stifling diversity can have real costs, but costs that are hard to measure. So I offer some ideas about how people can think about respecting these hidden benefits of innovation.
0: Well, what you've told us so far sounds like a no-brainer. Why do you think reforms like this haven't happened yet? So I think a lot of this comes down to risk aversion. Um, No one wants
1: to be the person who it says, oh, you got rid of Regulation X, and then Y, bad thing happened. This is all your fault. Um, The same thing might be true in the the charter world. I spent some time talking about how people are much more worried about false positives than false negatives. So they're much more worried about saying that a school is bad when it's actually – or saying that a bad school is good um, than saying that a good school is bad. They would much rather say, oh, we'll keep out a couple of potentially good schools if it means keeping out a whole bunch of bad schools. So I think that basically changing that view, perhaps becoming a little bit more comfortable with risk – understanding the costs of inaction, understanding these hidden benefits can change that orientation. But to answer your question, I just think a lot of this comes down to risk aversion.
0: Well, that makes sense to me. Now, a lot of folks might disagree that reducing regulations in education will make it better. They'll also claim that the democratic process has brought us to the regulatory landscape we're in today. How would you respond to those critics? So the big thing for me is that thinking about regulation is essentially
1: thinking about weighing trade-offs right so there is no such thing as the right or wrong amount of regulation there's just levels of costs and benefits that each individual state that each individual municipality or schooling system has to weigh out between them i would challenge though folks who who think that we have the right level of regulations to really take a hard look at the education code of their state, to look at the number of requirements that are placed on schools, or frankly to ask educators that are tasked with keeping up with them whether they think that these regulations are actually helpful or harmful. I understand the kind of inertia, the lack of desire to change them, but I think that we would see a broad-based consensus that there's too much micromanagement happening at the federal and the state, and even times even at like the local district level.
0: Yeah, and I'm- sure a lot of states have seen a drastic increase over time in the number of regulations, specifically to education. I remember from some of my previous uh, presentations that I gave a couple years ago, I had a clip of Milton Friedman kind of walking around a room showing the growth just in the federal register with all of the federal regulations growing over time. So I'm sure, as I said, that Individual states have seen this on a much larger level with education.
1: Yeah, I, I wrote a piece a couple of years ago you know, where I looked at just one legislative section in, in Missouri where I live, just the number of laws that were passed to try and uh, you know, regulate schools to change what they do. And then if you think that on top of those laws will be all of the rules that are written by the state education agency or the local education agency, and then on top of all of those will be the policies that local school districts or even that the state might create in order to comply with those. And you start to see just how much stuff we're talking about here.
0: Yeah. Well, this has been excellent. Is there anything we haven't covered that you think our listeners should know about rethinking regulation? Well, I think the big thing that I want this piece to convey
1: to people is this idea of weighing trade-offs. So in my recommendation section, I offer a lot of different ideas of of ways in which um, states or localities could try and cope with this. The idea of that section is not to be some kind of blueprint, you have to do this or you have to do that. It's more of a way of thinking about solving these problems and working through this. There is no one-size-fits-all solution. I wanted to just give opportunities for people to think about it and to weigh the various trade-offs. So I think it read in that spirit, hopefully it will be something that is helpful for regulators, legislators, advocates, and researchers to to think about this problem.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me. And props also go out to our listeners for taking the time to learn a little bit more about this new study. To stay updated on the latest school choice research, legislative news, and more, please remember to subscribe to our EdChoice Chats podcast. Our team is always creating new school choice resources. If you want to be notified when these become available, you can sign up to receive our emails on the web at edchoice.org. If social media is more your thing, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at EdChoice. That's it for our shameless self-promotion. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, take care. (laughs) Hmm. <laughs>